Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Red Envelope. I'm joined on the show today by my co-host and partner in crime, Bradley Lima, as well as two special guests, Jackson Mula and Dan Murphy from the Milken Institute, which is a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank determined to increase global prosperity by advancing collaborative solutions that wind access to capital, create jobs, and improve health. They publish a ton of research, which you can find on their website, www.milkininstitute.org, with topics from aging and longevity to fintech and healthcare. Dan also runs a fintech and focus blog, which I encourage you all to check it out, subscribe, so you can get the latest and greatest from what's going on around the world in fintech. Welcome, Jackson and Dan. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for the uh, opportunity. Great to be here. All right. So um, before we get started, can you give us all a brief background overview on what you guys are doing? How does the Center for Financial Services get started? And also um, give us a little bit of an update on some of the takeaways from the recent global conference in Beverly Hills. Sure. So let me just begin by uh, kind of introducing the, the, the Milken Institute uh, Center for Financial Markets. So uh, we've been around for about a decade now, I would say. Uh, we are based in Washington, D.C. Um, however, our mothership, the Milken Institute, is based in Santa Monica, uh, California. Um, there are a number of centers uh, within the Milken Institute, uh, the Center for Financial Markets being one of them. Uh, others uh, cover faster cures, uh, aging, uh, the Center for Regional uh, Economics, uh, among uh, and the Center for uh, Strategic Philanthropy, among other centers. Uh, so the Center for Financial Markets, like I said, has been around for about a decade now, and really, you know, we the the center looks at you know identifying ways to broaden access to capital um, and strengthen financial markets globally, and and part of the the programs within the center um, happens to be fintech, which both Dan and I uh, work on uh, almost on an everyday basis and uh, don't get too much sleep. But that being said, uh, you know our fintech program really focuses on uh, seeking to educate policymakers and industry stakeholders on the impact of fintech and its implications for public policy. But then the program also promotes uh, responsible innovation that improves access to capital, drives financial inclusion, and uh, fosters transparency and compliance. And those three buckets are really critical for our fintech research. A, a lot of our research, not the vast majority of it, will focus on, on those three buckets. Um, the program has been around since October of 2014, before fintech was even a, a buzzword here in, in Washington, D.C. policy and, and regulatory circles. Uh, and over the last uh, five years, uh, we've produced about 100 some odd publications, whether it's white papers, blog posts, op-eds, what have you, uh, along with about 70 to 80 some odd events, uh, leveraging our various conferences, our global conference being the biggest conference of the year, but then also we take part in a number of summits around the world. Uh, so our Asia Summit in Singapore, our London Summit, obviously in London, and then um, our, our MIA Summit as well, which was just uh, in the UAE in early February of, of this year. Um, and so those are both, you know, we have a lot of private sessions, we have a lot of public sessions involved in those, and we also do one-off on, uh, you know, one events as well. 
um, related to fintech developments, whether they be uh, domestic developments or uh, you know interest in international uh, efforts as, as well. Um, I'll have Dan take over on, on the global conference front since he uh, just came back as playing kind of a lead role for the fintech program out there. Yeah, and Theodore and Bradley, thanks again for having us. Uh, and yeah, as Jackson said, we just you know wrapped up global conference not long ago here, and we really had a fantastic conference again this year. Um, as you know, well, I think you know there were any number of takeaways. Could probably talk all day about it, but maybe just to give one specific and one more broad specific to fintech. I think one really interesting remark that was made by Simon Paris of Finastra was just in relation to big tech companies and their coming impact on the fintech and just financial services space is just that financial services firms should choose their friends carefully. Uh, and he made a really interesting remark about just saying that and that you really have to think about the ethos of a firm when deciding whether or not to partner with them. And just I think that as we're seeing more and more big tech firms get involved in financial services, just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen a lot of news about Facebook and, you know, Facebook coin or global coin. I can't keep track of what it's supposed to be called, but uh, I think that's a pretty good example of it's interesting to see which, which of the big tech firms have financial services ambitions and which are, you know, trying to stay a little bit more outside of that space. Um, and then a little bit more broadly, I think one big takeaway from a lot of these conferences is just, you know, the importance of data on you know, every, every industry going forward. But maybe a little bit more specific than that and relevant to our work in terms of public policy is there seems to be this larger question of I'm kind of calling it the hierarchy of needs problem as it relates to data privacy. And so, you know, we all know there's a large conversation right now about data privacy in light of GDPR and a lot of other regulatory developments. But it seems to be there's this conversation happening in every vertical right now where where people are asking themselves, well, should we really be worried about data privacy or should we rather be worried about, you know, increasing financial inclusion or you know, maybe meeting some healthcare needs globally that we weren't able to meet before by using alternative forms of data? And, you know, where does data privacy fall on that on that list of priorities? And, you know, our view is that it should be high on the list, is that we shouldn't be, you know, thinking about sacrificing privacy for, you know, for just anything. We have to have a real vigorous debate about these questions. But that's one question that seemed to be recurring to me in a lot of the many private and public sessions that we had. That's great. Let's talk about um, some more specifics about Asia in general. Um, there's a lot of really fascinating things happening sort of at scale, but the regulatory landscape is shifting very dramatically. Uh, we've seen recently that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority has been issuing virtual banking licenses, uh, most recently to Alibaba, Ping'an, Xiaomi, and Tencent, among others. I think there's like eight or nine that have been issued. What's what's the impact, do you think, um, happening in the territory with these banking licenses? Yeah, I, I think it's it's been very interesting to see what's come out of the, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. And, and uh, I think we've seen, I think you mentioned, eight uh, virtual uh, banking licenses that have been offered uh, since March. And again, four back in March and another four that were issued in uh, early to mid-May. Um, I, I just think from some of the interesting views, just, just how I see it, uh, you know, the, the the first batch of licenses went to uh, a number of joint partnerships that were supported by incumbent institutions. So Standard Charter was involved. I think the Bank of Hong Kong uh, or the Bank of China, Hong Kong, uh, was also involved. 
And then if you look at the, the newest four that were approved in early to mid-May, uh, it's all big tech uh, backed virtual uh, banking licenses, which is which is interesting uh, progression over the last uh, couple months. Uh, you've had Alibaba, Pingon, and, and, and Tencent uh, in, involved. Um, and I guess from my standpoint, I know Dan will, will speak a little bit more on this, but you know, from from my uh, perspective, I think it's interesting that you know we're, we're pushing on this these virtual banks when there's already 160 plus licensed uh, institutions in Hong Kong already. And you know, my question is, you know, do, do we really need more, right? And then are are we truly talking about stimulating competition uh, within Hong Kong's uh, banking industry? given the fact there's already 160 some odd uh, licensed banks, or, or are we talking about something else here? Is there something else to the, to the virtual banks? Um, and my other thing is, you know, are these virtual banks, are, are they gonna be, um, you know, reaching into the populations that are underbanked and unbanked, or are they simply gonna skim off the top of the, you know, some of the, the best borrowers and the best, um, you know, accounts that are out there. So is it more cream of the crop or are we actually looking at, uh, you know, financial or inclusive finance uh, with these virtual banking licenses? And I'll have Dan talk a, a little bit more. Yeah, and I think, yeah, a few reactions. I mean, uh, I think, you know, just on a surface level, obviously, I think a priority in Hong Kong is just to increase uptake of digital payments a little bit. I know it lags behind the rest of the region in that and so i think they're hoping that this will will you know, move that along a little bit um but then at the same time yeah i think it does mark an interesting uh, departure from the way that certainly you know a lot of western countries have looked in the u.s in particular has looked at bank regulation um i mean the u.s is a separation of banking and commerce under the bank, bank holding company act which is a little bit unique but it's kind of a clear line there whereas obviously this is going very much in the opposite direction so I think that, you know, watching the experiments move along as well as on, you know, how it's going on mainly in China, I think it's, it will be interesting to see for policymakers. Um, and yeah, I think Jackson's point about, you know, whether or not this is injecting competition, I think, yeah, obviously short run, you know, you're obviously hopefully going to see some price points moving lower just as a result of the competition. But then longer term, you do have to ask yourself, well, as these companies grow, do they end up just calcifying the market, you know, even more, uh, you know, in the same way that the big tech companies have done in many, many other industries. So I think long run, it will be interesting to see what happens. I agree. And, and back to your point about, you know, financial inclusion and actually, you know, are they reaching out to, to the customers that don't already have service right now and correlating that to another point you made earlier around data privacy. That, that's something that, you know, it's a little iffy, right? If you look at a lot of these regions, um, for example, there was some startups that, that we were talking to that said, oh, you know, to, to include access to financial services, we are taking all of these additional data sets, right? That, that a consumer may or may not know that exist in the marketplace and then make a determination of, for example, whether or not they qualify for credit. So there are some question marks in there as well as to what are these companies exactly doing and what are consumers sacrificing in terms of data privacy and, and what's going on with their data and if they even have any rights to, um, to what these startups are doing in the name of financial inclusion. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, yeah, I think there's a number of questions about, you know, 
these, these are all these are all such new considerations for your average consumer that I think in many cases they don't know what they're giving up. Uh, there's a great book out there right now called the, the Age of Surveillance Capitalism by an author from Harvard named Shoshana Zuboff, which really explores this issue, not just as it relates to financial services, but really in depth. And uh, I'm working my way through it now. It's, it's, it's a fantastic read. Definitely recommend it. Cool. Perfect. We like book recommendation. So speaking of um, these big techs and Chinese fintech, so there was a news not too long ago about Nepal moving to ban the Chinese digital payment apps, WeChat Pay and Alipay, saying that these guys are illegal and it results in a loss of income to, to Nepal. So considering that these apps are widely used by Chinese tourists practically all over and Nepal gets quite a few of them, how do we see this develop going forward? And do you think other Asian countries may follow? Yeah, I mean, I think from a policy perspective, obviously, just for, for the Nepalese policymakers, it makes sense for them to want to maintain some control over their payment system. And I think especially, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Alipay and, and Tencent Pay have been very dominant in the region. And so they've sort of uh, become themselves uh, supranational authorities just by, you know, by their sheer size. Um, but I guess in terms of whether or not we see other people, other other regulators copying the model in the region, I'm not so sure. I mean, I think it's so far at least we've seen whether it's Alipay itself or whether it's, you know, uh, other companies that Alibaba or Tencent are investing in uh, throughout Southeast Asia. You know, the other regulators have been pretty happy to let them let them operate either through that model or directly. Um, so I think I don't know if I would see too many others blocking them uh, just for that reason. But, you know, that might change a little bit going forward, especially as we see again, you know, Google. Now, I guess in the next couple of weeks here, we're going to have some more insight into what Facebook coin looks like. Of a, you know, um, finally, we're hearing a lot of rumors, so we're not really sure what's true, true yet. But uh, I think going forward, maybe that will incentivize some players to, to, stop, to stop it a little bit, maybe just for geopolitical reasons as well. Yeah, just to add on to Dan, I mean, you mentioned the, la the loss of income. I was reading some statistic a, a few days ago that was talking about how Chinese tourists are expected to spend more than $255 billion overseas by 2025. So if you take away that, you know, their ability to uh, transact using their, you know, using the app, apps from Alipay or Tencent or others, for instance, uh, that, you know, that, that certainly could lead to a, a loss of, of income. But then, you know, as, as Dan mentioned, you know, I think there are some broader geopolitical concerns here, right? And, and Nepal may be, uh, you know, protecting its own payment system for sure, but then also, you know, may want to stimulate its own, uh, you know, payments ecosystem. And if you allow these kind of big guys to entrench themselves uh, early on, you kind of, uh, you make it difficult for competitors to uh, to grow and expand within, within that country. Um, and then I, you know, I think on, on, on broader uh, geopolitical concerns, you know, I, I think we're starting to see some pushback against some of these, uh, you know, big techs, uh, coming out of out of China, and you know, if you look at um, you know what's going on with Huawei, uh, U.S. for instance, uh, you know, obviously the U.S. getting involved in blocking uh, Ant Financial from acquiring MoneyGram, um, and then now also kind of pressuring uh, their allies to uh, to do the same as it relates to broadband and, and, and 5G networks. And you know, one of the things I think is interesting from a from a U.S. perspective as we look at what's going on in, in China, uh, we, we recently just did a an update on fintech legislation in the 116th Congress. And 
uh, you're really starting to see geopolitical issues with China uh, seep into this, uh, into the legislation. And uh, a number of uh, what we classify as broadband bills are, are really trying to protect uh, 5G networks from uh, influence from some of these big techs uh, emerging uh, out of China. And then also on the uh, intellectual property bills, as well as Internet of Things uh, legislation, we're seeing a lot of focus on uh, specifically on China. Uh, so it's interesting as, as some countries kind of embrace these, uh, especially in Southeast Asia, as they embrace a lot of these uh, Chinese kind of big tech stars, uh, others are, are looking to kind of push back against them. And, and so I think it's, uh, it's, it's a big uh, uh, pull and push, uh, depending on what country you're, uh, you're, you're talking about. It's, it's an interesting conundrum, right, that, that uh, Southeast Asia and Asia in general kind of finds itself. You have the influx of a larger Chinese tourist class um, going into these other countries and spending a lot of money. And then you have the needs of both the economy and the banks for income that they're losing from these large payment yeah. applications. What do, you, what do you see about, you know, more about big tech um, flowing from China and other places of Asia and going into new regions. Um, it's opening up, you know, possibilities in terms of new businesses being driven around uh, these activities, but maybe some other challenges as well. Where do you think things are going to go next? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a really interesting question internationally right now. And, you know, you mentioned uh, the conundrum for Southeast Asian policymakers. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, you could say the same for policymakers in Europe and Africa and South America. Um, in Europe, for exa example, I know that you know there's been a big question of how do we spur innovation, how do we spur you know a more dynamic startup environment, and all of a sudden there's a lot of corporate venture capital flowing from Chinese tech giants and you know investing very heavily throughout Europe, and it's really it's, it's hard to say no to, right? Especially if you're a policymaker interested in spurring innovation, and so. There is a little bit of a question there about, you know, you know, do you take it or do you not, I guess, thinking geopolitically. Um, and so uh, we'll see what happens. But I think what's going to eventually, you know, be a big part of answering that question is the extent to which competition policy plays a role in the domestic policy. Uh, you know, how high that is in the hierarchy in terms of domestic policy, because, I mean, we just saw in the U.S. Uh, last week. So now the Department of Justice and the FTC are going to be looking into the U.S. big tech companies. We've seen in Europe for a number of years now that under Vestager, the European Union has been really, you know, trying to come down in terms of in terms of, uh, you know, anti-competitive practices. There's larger questions about taxation that the OECD is trying to figure out as well as the EU. We'll see if we ever get there. Um, but I think that the role of competition in domestic markets and, you know, the knock-on economic effects that less uh, competitive markets have will really play a role in the extent to which that domestic regulators are willing to let Chinese or American big tech companies come in and invest and, you know, enter into the markets. And just to add on that, I think that uh, Dan basically said 99% of what I wanted to say, which is, which is perfect. But, you know, the other thing that we're looking at, too, is that localization requirements and how that's going to be uh, pretty impactful, whether you're just a small fintech or a large uh, big tech firm. We've seen a number of nations, uh, you know, either implement or think about implementing uh, data localization rules and how that will affect 
um, you know, big tech or just fintech's ability to uh, cross borders and uh, operate in, in other markets in the future, uh, you know, still to be determined, but simply, but, but certainly on the radar of a number of fin U.S. fintech companies, for instance, but then uh, international uh, tech companies as well. Yeah, I want to pick back up on something that, you know, you guys were talking earlier, too, is, you know, as we're looking at these, quote unquote, Chinese big tech, if you will, and their strategy to, um, one would say, conquer the world, uh, someone else would say, you know, basically just ex expanding their reach um, beyond Southeast Asia, it, it seems like the strategy that they use in different markets are a little different, right? So you mentioned earlier, um, and financials deal um, in trying to, to purchase uh, a payments company in the U.S. got blocked. But then if you look at what's going on in Europe, um, you know, recently there was a, a, a partnership or collaboration, if you will, that, that was announced that Alipay is joining forces with different European digital wallets to try to increase, you know, payment adoption using QR codes. So it seems like different markets are embracing them differently and, and they are using different strategy, right? Like in the U.S., for example, they're trying to get into the market with, um, was it Walgreens? Uh, a retail um, yeah. chain to, to try to get um, more more user adoption. So, you know, different local markets and their approach seems to be something interesting to watch. Um, which leads us to, you know, something, you know, that again is, is different uh, ecosystems, if you will, that they're embracing it differently um, with respect to open banking, right? We see a, a little bit more movement. I wouldn't say a whole lot more, but a little bit more movement in Europe compared to the U.S. in terms of it acting as a catalyst to change the financial services industry and opening up opportunities for others to serve the consumers. What ways do you see regulation as being a driver for broader changes in Asia as well as other markets? Just, just to get back to your, your previous question, uh, you know, real quick, and, you know, it's, it's not to say that the U.S. is completely against, uh, you know, Chinese technology coming into the U.S. markets. I mean, we've seen in 2017 when Alipay and Tencent struck partnerships deals with, like, First Data and, and, and Sitcon, for instance, to allow Chinese tourists to, uh, you know, transact at, at millions of stores, uh, ability to transact at millions of stores across the U.S., uh, so I think uh, partnerships is, is one thing. Acquisition seems to be another thing, though, right? And I think we're a little bit more, for some reason, we're a little bit more concerned about acquisitions versus partnerships, um, you know, from a U.S. perspective. So I find that to be pretty, uh, you know, interesting. So, you know, Alipay and, and Tencent do have, you know, their arms within, uh, their payment arms within the U.S. But, um, you know, from an acquiring standpoint, we, we seem to kind of put up a, a wall against uh, some of that. Which I find interesting, but on the uh, open banking side of things, Dan, if you want to more broadly, I think your question was about regulation as just um, you know driving change in Asia, and I think it's interesting. So I think that some of the markets have really been more you know market driven. Uh, so looking at China again, and you know the the large tech players there have very much replicated the move fast and break things approach, and you know they've done so sort of with uh, obviously keeping. You know, talking to the government, and obviously that's uh, they've been very much in communication, but regulation has really sort of followed from what progress they've been able to make there, it seems. Uh, it's been a little bit different, though, if you look at India. India, obviously, is a completely different system, uh, thinking about India stack. And uh, that's, I think, definitely a case of you know, regulation driving change 
I'm really excited to see what comes out of it. I think that a lot of people always ask, like, you know, where to look next for the big fintech innovations. And I think uh, what they've done in India is really fascinating. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing what changes the regulation does drive there. When you think about both, you know, China and India and Southeast Asia, and you think about such large economies, um, as we talk about, you know, the, the sort of lessons uh, that we can learn from these large companies and financial and others, what could we learn um, here in the U.S. From, from these platforms? You know, what are some of those unique elements that they're successful with uh, that either could apply to our market or do you think it's, you know, something that is really unique um, to sort of non-U.S. markets that allow these companies to um, gather so much growth so quickly i'm not sure yeah i'm not sure if i would say it's it's totally unique to those markets i think there are obviously unique you know cultural and re uh, regulatory um elements to to the markets that um that may make obviously that drive that but i think that we can learn from it i think that you know history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes and you know the way i always think about this is it used to be looking back at you know the second industrial revolution uh, the U.S. was sort of this provincial place with, you know, you know Europe, which was at the time like leading the world in, in many industries, sort of looked at us with this, uh, you know, raised eyebrows of kind of, uh, you know, kind of skepticism. And then at the World's Fair in London, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't European innovators that were changing everything. It was American innovators and, you know, American companies that were bringing the best innovations to life. And now I think the same thing is happening, but it's in Asia. And so, you know, Maybe it's not the World's Fair in London anymore. Maybe it's Singapore FinTech Festival. And so I think where, you know, there's, there's going to be regulatory differences. We may, one thing we may want to learn is what not to do in terms of, I mean, looking at, for example, the Chinese peer-to-peer -peer lending crisis. That's obviously not a, a success story as a, as a policymaker. But one thing you can definitely learn is where the market's heading, uh, where the industries are heading, and how things could look. Uh, and then you have to decide if you're a policymaker, and this, this is how we think about these things, you know, to what extent you want to copy it, to what extent you want to use those tailwinds, and then to what extent you want to try to, you know, protect against the downside risk. And I think if, if you look at just kind of adding on to Dan, you know, when you look at market trends, especially if you look at, you know, where venture capital activity is going over the last, uh, you know, two decades. I mean, you know, in the early 2000s, it was largely, you know, U.S. is a hotbed for venture capital activity and, you know, global uh, venture capital investment. We made up about 90% to 95% of it, right? Uh, and now you've got, you know, fast forward to today, where you've got about 30% to 40% of, of uh, you know, total venture capital investment, you know, going towards Asia and in particular to China. So, you know, there is recognition that this is a, a growing uh, you know, these are growing economies with uh, some interesting uh, techno you know, technological uh, innovations happening over there. Um, and, you know, a lot of interest is, uh, is being placed over there now. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us.
So if, if we take a look at the funding trends in the last few months, for example, we see a considerable dropout, right, in, in, uh, in funding going to Chinese startups. And the funding from China coming into the U.S. startups is also under, undergoing a lot more scrutiny than it used to. My question in my curiosity is if the trend is to continue based on what we have seen for the last five months or so, how would we think would impact the development of these startups in, in the different regions? Because startups really can't be local per se, right? And, and a lot of things is funding comes from all over the world, come from the UAE, come from Europe, come from US and, and, and Chinese market. But by and large, the funding that's coming from American markets, as well as Chinese markets, the CVCs that you guys talked about from Tencent and what have you, is, is substantial. Right. So if we start cutting of the flow of money between these two big economies, how do we think that's going to impact the startup ecosystem going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think you're right to, to flag it. I think it could have a substantial impact. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, that's very much tied to what we've seen in terms of some of the, I mean, looking at, for example, Uber's IPO and Lyft's IPO and just some of the questions about whether or not, uh, the private market valuations that some of these companies uh, were operating under uh, were ever very realistic. Um, and so I think there seems to be this collective deep breath being taken right now uh, to see whether, you know, what appetite, what investors' appetite is, um, you know, how, how realistic are some of these valuations in the private market and then how much more, you know, venture capital, for example, should flow to them. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, you definitely, there definitely is a risk of cutting off a large stream of capital in terms of, you know, if you're thinking about this geopolitically, then, you know, obviously there's a big risk there. Um, it also flags there's a lot of capital obviously coming from, for example, uh, Qatar and the UAE. Um, and so they're obviously investing heavily via, you know, the vision fund, uh, and everything else. So, um, yeah, I think it, it's a good question and, I guess I'm curious to see to what extent that type of money will substitute for, uh, for yeah, the CVC funds that we've seen flowing if that gets cut off. Yeah, just to add on to that, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is uh, you know, <clears throat> what we saw in the U.S. back in 2016, and uh, KPMG does these fantastic uh, FinTech Pulse reports, and they used to do them on a quarterly basis, now they do them on a every half-year basis. Uh, but nonetheless, really interesting figures. But they, what they found in North America, though, was that the payments and lending spaces are becoming saturated. And so what we, what we noticed, and uh, you know, several of the, the uh, projects that we undertook um, from 2016 and beyond, is that a lot more funding was actually going to reg tech firms and insure tech firms uh, than was going to, uh, was actually was starting to go to reg tech and insure tech firms. So you know, VCs were, were shifting their money out of the saturated areas or, or less, or focusing less on the saturated areas and more on, you know, some of these emerging uh, technologies or subsectors, as I like to call them, of, of, of fintech. Um, now, I, I think that could potentially be happening in, in China and Southeast Asia. I mean, it's a hotbed for payments activities, but how many co payment companies do you need, right? And same thing from the, the lending perspective, for instance. Um, obviously, we're seeing a lot more interest in, uh, you know, EKYC from a number of these countries. So investments are kind of shifting into that area. But then also, uh, you know, what may affect these trends is, is where else, uh, what other countries should, should we start investing in? And I think you're starting to see a lot more interest in, for instance, the Middle East. Uh, they're getting their, uh, 
you know, they're figuring out the, the politics and regulations around fintech there. And, and that area is certainly seeing an increase, a, a double digit increase in, uh, you know, fintech growth over the last several years. You haven't heard too much out of, uh, you know, Latin America and Africa, for instance, but, you know, we're starting to see, at least from the English press, uh, a lot more uh, interest in fintech policy and regulation uh, in those areas. And so that is likely to drive more investment into those countries uh, and, and continents as well. Yeah, yeah. Just as an example of that, I think if you look at Mexico, Mexico passed a fintech law, I believe it was last year. Um, you know, there's a new government there now. And so uh, how they implement that is a little bit of an open question. But uh, I know Mexico, Argentina, other, you know, Colombia, other markets have begun to look in Latin America have begun to uh, try to position themselves now in the way that Jackson's talking about. So uh, to the extent that the U.S. and China is in some sort of a ge geopolitical uh, you know, standoff, uh, I think, yeah, you could very well see a lot more uh, money funneling into Latin America, for example. You know, it's it's really interesting when you think about the funding question that we were just talking about. If if you look at everything that's happened in the past year between uh, the United States and China's economy and all of the sort of saber rattling around tariffs and what have you, it's almost like the the money that flows into startups and ideas and sort of this propagation of large tech companies taking over established industries is also sort of the new norm. Um, there's been this ongoing conversation in the last couple of decades in the United States about sort of this end of the American century and the rise of the Chinese economy as this predominant force in global economics. But there's so many more countries involved in this conversation. There's a dozen or more economies throughout just Asia and into India that are as important to the context of these type of dialogues that we have about where the future is going to be driven from. It just seems we're much more interdependent, not just our economies, but in terms of the way that we fund ideas and how those ideas come to market. What, what other ways should we be challenging our assumptions about the future? Yeah, no, I think, and just, uh, just to underscore your point, I think that's true. Um, I actually saw a funny article I, I just got to read very briefly on FT Alphaville this morning where uh, there was an ETF being started uh, that, I, I can't remember the exact details, but something along the lines of the idea was they're only going to invest in companies that, you know, were from free market economies and thus China was going to be excluded. However, one of the largest companies in the portfolio was NASPERS, which owns, I think, a, something like a 30% stake in Tencent. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's all very interconnected and it's a little bit hard to totally limit yourself uh, from one economy or another. Um, and then, sorry, the, the, the last part of your question was? Just what other ways should we be challenging our assumption, um, not just from the economics of what's happening, just the, how interdependent we are in terms of our economies? Yeah, you know, I, I would just look at, you know, some of the, the countries that are really trying to establish themselves as kind of gateways uh, to, the, to the wider region. And, and you know, what I, uh, when I mentioned that, I mean, we just came back in, from early February from a trip to uh, Abu Dhabi and, and Dubai. And, and really, they're, you know, they're trying to uh, basically call themselves the gateway to, you know, the Middle East and then the wider, uh, wider region. And, and one of the big things their selling point is, you know, within a three to six hour flight, they've got four billion people uh, right around them. Um, and so I think that's, you know, your ability to 
you know, come into our markets and then, you know, whether it be test in our markets or, you know, use our market as a launching point for broader, um, you know, efforts for whatever your product or service or model is, um, you know, that's some of the some of the stories that we're, we're starting to hear um, out of some of these countries. And so I think that's uh, pretty interesting uh, to kind of take away. Yeah, I agree. I think the whole um, region that we don't talk about enough is is around Islamic finance, right? It, it's a it's a really big population of people that could be served, um, but either they are not served or not served well. Um, sure. You know, and, and that's that's an area that we're very interested in. Um, I, I did not know this until recently that apparently, um, not only Indonesia is a, is a big big. Um, but for innovation and for that particular um, ecosystem, but also there's a lot of funding activity happening in the UK as well. So that was something new I learned. So I think if you look at Indonesia, Malaysia, UK, um, and then you know the UAE is really trying to make a big stride in attracting uh, Islamic fintech uh, startups. Whether um, and, and so there, there's certainly a, a big push, and we've seen that recently with a number of consultative documents that have come out from the various regulators um, and, and regulations kind of uh, being put into place at, at this point to you know, create a, a, a hub for uh, Islamic fintech investment. I mean, that's certainly something that uh, Abu Dhabi Global Markets and then uh, Dubai International Financial uh, Corporation is, is really looking to uh, push in uh, their respective uh, free zones within the UAE. So, in your in your from your perspective, what do you, how do you think all of these fintechs influence how we address not just the unbanked, right, which is about one point seven billion? It's decreasing, but still there's one point seven billion. But not just the unbanked population, but also the needs of the underbanked. Um, how do you see those fintechs influencing how we approaching that population? Yeah, I mean, I think the market opportunity for underbanked consumers is at least as at least as promising as it is for unbanked. I mean, uh, obviously, the, the challenge of reaching the last mile is very difficult, uh, as you know, any development expert will tell you. Um, but I think you know, there's a lot of opportunities in terms of um, you know, maybe just some behavioral fixes for savings, for example. Um, Maybe we want to edit this out because, to be honest, I haven't fully thought through this question yet. But um, well, I mean, but, on, on the you know on the financial inclusion front, I mean, one of the big things we should be asking ourselves, especially you know for those rolling off the uh, the, the, the roles of the unbanked, um, is are, are they getting the right financial products and services uh, to really you know build healthier lives? You know, we we constantly talk about inclusivity and financial inclusion, but there's more to inclusion than just you know bringing down that 1.7 billion number. I know, I know it's been brought down over the last couple of years, which has been great to see, but you know, what does that mean for financial health? Are they getting the right products and services ultimately? Um, otherwise, uh, you know, I, I, think there are, I think we need to start thinking deeper on the, on the financial health side rather than the actual inclusion side of it. Yeah, I agree. I think one interesting uh, missed opportunity, if if, if um, you may would call it, is the uh, gig economy, right? So all those gig workers, 
chances yeah. are they are banked. They're not unbanked, but the other products and services that's available suiting what they're needing. And I would challenge them and say, no, they aren't, right? And, and it's a big and growing market of people that are looking for solutions to help them navigate the new future of work. And yet the solutions are very um, limited as to what we can see right now. Yeah, I think there's definitely a space for those solutions. Uh, then I'm also I'm always trying to remind myself as well because you know this is the space that we focus on. But I think uh, there's a number of places where you know we're the right type of folks to be weighing in on finding solutions for financial services, for example, for gig economy workers. But there's also just there's a, a serious role for labor policy to play there, labor market policy that I think uh, you know policymakers really have to address and really have to try to uh, draw some more clear guidelines about what is and isn't allowed there. Um, so I just, I guess I worry a little bit at the same time that we try to do too much and just say, okay, by designing the right financial product, using tech somehow for a gig economy worker, we can make this all much more sustainable. When in reality, I'm not sure. I wonder if actually in that particular example, if labor market policy protections are maybe what's needed even more. Yeah, one of one of the more you know from a U.S. policy perspective, one of the really active senators in this is Senator Mark Warner, um, and you know he has introduced several legislative bills over the last uh, several Congresses uh, that specifically uh, you know focus on the gig economy and and, and gig workers, uh, for lack of a better term, um, and, and how we should start pursuing uh, you know some labor policies as it relates to uh, you know the gig economy. So. You know, for those interested, definitely look at some of his, uh, his plans from the past. When I, when I think about the changes in the last 10 or 15 years, I think the story of uh, fintech and the story of big tech coming into finance will be this sort of driving down of not just the people that are underbanked, uh, but that percentage of people that are unbanked. We've seen 100 million people a year have access now to uh, accounts and ability to save and ability to get access to credit. And we've seen 600 million people just in the last six years um, kind of come into the financial services world. But to your point, that's not necessarily financial health. That is not right. necessarily, you know, coming up to where the rest of the world is in terms of opportunities. Uh, that's just basic, basic access. So, you have at the Milken Institute have been a platform for driving those conversations around this question of financial inclusion and those solutions for the 99%. How do we move beyond just conversations to action? Yeah, and I think, uh, again, just to underscore your, your, your previous point, I think that's a really big question is, you know, how effective have these firms been? And as Jackson, and you both said so well, you know, not just in driving financial inclusion, but also financial health. And then again, I think the other question is how sustainable is the progress that has been made? You know, if we start, to, if we do start to see tech giants being broken up and they're not able to cross subsidize the provision of financial services as maybe they are right now in some cases, will that, will some of that progress come undone? And so is that something that those interested in financial inclusion should hang their hats on? Or is it something that we should be a little bit wary of as not a very sustainable solution? 
And, you know, in terms of uh, moving from conversations to action, I think that's, you know, a key point. I mean, we love and, you know, we love bringing the right people to the table and hosting fantastic events where, you know, the right people can meet each other and germinate ideas and get the action moving. But I think it really is starting to move uh, based on a lot of the conversations that we've had. Um, you know, not too much I can say right now, but I've seen a decent amount of uh, of you know more planning coming on data governance issues, for example, different regulators who are starting to host their own conversations and you know ask us you know who can we speak to, who can we bring to the table to talk about these issues, uh, who are the right people who are thinking about this from academia, you know, from consumer advocates, from you know private sector, and I think that's really great is getting the conversation started and then hopefully having it move to be something that's a real solution. And again, I think these data governance questions are an area where you're starting to see more. Action. You know, we've seen Europe move on this. We've seen India move in a completely different way. And I think the rest of these markets are starting to catch up. Yeah, I, I think, you know, as Dan said, starting the discussion is, is the important part. I mean, we've seen from a, a number of regulatory bodies you know, in thinking about how to create kind of flexible, agile, agile regulatory frameworks. You know, the first thing that comes out of these bodies is, well, here, you know, here's a consultative document on what we're thinking. But because we're not on the ground level, we would love to hear your feedback and input. And I think it really starts from there because, you know, when we were uh, started the FinTech program back in 2014, it was the FCA was coming out with a number of consultative documents on a whole wide range of things. Um, and that really kind of built them into, you know, being called so calling uh, calling themselves, you know, the FinTech capital of the world two or three years later. Um, and it got to that point through all these consultative documents, requests for information, you know, getting the industry and, and, and public feedback on just where we should go and how do we get there. Um, and I think that those are critical kind of first, uh, you know, conversations to, to have um, that will drive engagement and, and drive the process uh, moving forward. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. It's, it's been a fascinating conversation. It was great to, to catch up with you all. And, um, and also for those who are listening, if you haven't yet, I would, again, encourage you guys to go visit Mookin Institute's website and sign up for Dan's FinTech and Focus um, newsletter. And the, in the most recent one, they also included a legislative updates um, that just, uh, that's been tracking everything that's going on in the Congress. So totally, highly encourage you all to follow them. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Thanks, Joe. Bye.